Last week in our series in Leviticus, we touched on the central biblical theme of God dwelling with His people. Today I'd like to return to that theme and to soak in it uh, together. God dwelling with His people is a theme of crucial emphasis in the book of Leviticus. If you've been working through this series with us, that should make good sense to you. The dwelling of God with man is such a critical theme there, but it's also a crucial theme in the birth narrative of Jesus, of course, and we've been singing about that. The prophet Isaiah said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel is God with us. The Hebrew word, im, uh, with, anu, us, and el, God. With us, God. It's actually those words in the Hebrew language. God with us, as we put it. Centuries after this prophecy, the Gospel according to Matthew records the birth of this prophesied Son, this One who would be called God with us. His name there is called Jesus, Savior, because He had come to rescue His people from their sins. Matthew tells us, chapter 1, verse 21. But it's just two verses later that Matthew recalls this prophecy in the book of Isaiah. And he says this is the prophesied Emmanuel, a name that Matthew translates for his Gentile readers. God with us. The significance and wonder of this name will require the rest of eternity for us to comprehend. The transcendent God, the God who is above His creation, who is untouchable, by the ugliness of this world and by its sin, who is eternal and so distant from it. This transcendent God, this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, all-present, holy Creator and Sustainer and Sovereign Lord of the universe displays exquisite imminence by choosing to dwell with His people. The transcendent God in imminence with us. We've been singing of that this morning, speaking of it this morning. This one that could be held in our hands is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of the universe. The quintessential display of God's gracious imminence is the incarnation of Jesus. God taking on flesh to rescue us from the righteous judgment that would come against our sin. But as with all of God's redemptive works, the coming of Emmanuel, God with us, was the centerpiece of an eternal and comprehensive plan for the ages. So as the wise men followed the star to Bethlehem, so to speak, let's track the theme of God dwelling with us through five eras of redemptive history. To Bethlehem, and beyond. But first, in the beginning, God dwelt with man in the sanctuary of Eden. I'm going to arrange this outline on this slide as we work through uh, the time together to arrange it in a, in a unique way uh, and to see the, the progress of Revelation uh, even through the arrangement on this slide. But we begin with the beginning, God dwelling with man in the sanctuary of Eden. And we know of this account well. 
We noted last week Adam and Eve's ultimate joy was not found in the splendors of nature. It was not the quest to subdue the earth. It was not found in procreating. It was not found even in the wonderful relationship that they had free of sin. As wonderful as that was. Adam and Eve's ultimate joy in the garden was to commune in the presence of the living God. That was their ultimate joy. The garden was a sanctuary of God's presence. A sanctuary of delight, the word Eden, in communion with God. The psalmist reflects this primal joy in God's presence in Psalm 36. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. There's imminence, there's closeness there. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life and in your light do we see light. When Adam and Eve broke fellowship with God by disobeying His law, what did they do? Think of it in terms of this psalm. Think of it in terms of the sanctuary in which they are meeting with God. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hide from the face of God, which indicates that they had known the joy of walking with God. They communed in His presence. In the sanctuary of Eden, they met with God here. They anticipated meeting Him here, and particularly on Sabbath. On that seven-day rotation when they would rest in the presence of the living God. Now in sin, they run from it. They hide from His presence for ways we won't uh, discuss here, but obviously in their guilt, in their shame, they don't want to be with the God who walks with them in Eden. Tragically, their disobedience separated them from God, expelled them from paradise, away from the presence of the Lord. In the beginning, God dwelt with man in the sanctuary of Eden. But after the fall, God's dwelling with man inhabited the tabernacle temple. At least it was epitomized there. God never abandoned Adam and Eve. Rather, He initiated a plan of redemption to restore sinful man to communion with God in His presence. And this was no small effort. When we think of it as something that should be simple, it is because we don't understand the greatness of God and it is because we don't understand the severity of sin. But this process began and was extremely difficult and continues to our day. But God did not abandon them. The essence of this plan of God dwelling with His people was the tabernacle, eventually the temple in Jerusalem. Now God's presence attended His people in a myriad of other ways and we can fill in with any knowledge that we have of the Bible when we consider God dwelling with, meeting with, interacting with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Joseph, certainly Moses as well, and many others. We know that God dwelt with His people, but it was epitomized here in the tabernacle, which we've been considering over the past several weeks. God delivered Israel certainly from Egypt as well. In their slavery there, the glory cloud of God's presence protected and led Israel in the desert. 
That word Shekinah, the Shekinah glory, that cloud, means literally in the Hebrew that He dwelt with them. He was in their presence dwelling among them. But all of this from Mount Sinai coming down now to this tabernacle and dwelling in this place, God's presence there among His people in a a ritual system that was designed to teach them how to approach Him in His holiness and how to perceive themselves addressing God and entering His presence through in their sin. Here the literal glory of God's presence came to reside behind the veil in the Holy of Holies. Remember that as we've been working through Leviticus, the end of Exodus, that glory comes to inhabit this tabernacle. Then a carefully scripted ritual approach is offered by God to His people that they may not only know that He dwells here among them, but that they may approach Him here and meet in His presence. And God's holy presence was then to reverberate from the tabernacle into the daily lives of His people. And beyond the tabernacle's restrictive circles, we read this word of hope in Leviticus 26, and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. This is at the tabernacle, but this is now outside the tabernacle. In your midst, in myriad ways, I will walk with you, I will dwell with you, you will be my people. We note this theme in Leviticus. It's figurative. Clearly it's figurative that God walks among us in one sense. It's figurative, but notice this. God's presence among His people is so real that God issues this law. Have you ever scratched your head about this reading through Deuteronomy? It's amazing. But He said, And you shall have a trowel with your tools. And when you sit down outside, that's not to take a rest. Well, it is, but it's to relieve yourself. You shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. That's a nice thing to do. But notice how God describes the reason. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp. That just gives you chills. He walks with you to this degree to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be a holy camp so that He may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. We tie this together with what we're learning through the book of Leviticus. And as we've dealt with some really strange things such as skin diseases and bodily fluids and the like, it's really earthy, isn't it? God brings it even to this place and says, I am with you. He doesn't want to walk in the midst of a smelly camp. Eventually, the tabernacle is upgraded to Solomon's temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and God's presence comes to dwell in that temple. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, The temple now completed. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. In Leviticus, you're hearing that, aren't you? This is exactly what has happened with the altar as the tabernacle was established and now also with the temple. 
and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Notice that phrase. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. As he had filled the tabernacle, so now he fills the temple. Third, in the beginning, God dwells with man in the sanctuary of Eden. After the fall, God's dwelling with man is epitomized as it inhabits the tabernacle, the temple. Now, as we come to this day, the incarnation of Christ ushered in a new dwelling place of God with man, Jesus' body, the new temple. As the newborn Jesus is laid to sleep in a Bethlehem manger, who on earth could fully comprehend that the second person of the triune God had taken on flesh and come to dwell among us. Further, the Scriptures reveal that Jesus became the new temple and His presence, the ultimate meeting place with God. Theoretically, the temple in Jerusalem was still a place where sinners could commune with God. And Jesus reminded them of that as He drove out the money changers. But the coming of Jesus fulfilled the temple's purpose. Its purpose is a place where God's glory resided among His people and where sinners could approach Him. The glory cloud of God's presence had long ago departed from this temple. But we are to understand that this glory now resides in Jesus. And Jesus Himself is then God with us. Not behind the veil in the temple, but now in the person of the Son. Jesus, we notice here in Isaiah 7 and verse 14 again, was not a God with us. And there are those that would even claim to be Christians who would say this. They would argue that Jesus was a God, that at some place He became God, and that He came to dwell among us. But it says that Jesus, of Jesus, He is God with us. Not a God with us, but God with us. And if there's any doubt that we're reading this appropriately, in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, this Son who is born is called the Everlasting Father. That doesn't work in logic on a lot of levels. But in the person of Christ, this prophecy is fulfilled. He is God with us the everlasting Father, in some sense. Now the Gospel according to Matthew then identifies Jesus as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. There's Isaiah 7.14, which Matthew translates for his Gentile readers, meaning, with us, God. God with us. The Gospel according to John supports this idea uniquely. As he says, the Word became flesh. The Word that was with God and was God. There's that thinking again. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Notice that phrase at the beginning, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word, this Greek word, means to dwell, to tent. It could be even translated to tabernacle. As God dwelt in the tabernacle of Israel among the people, so now Jesus tabernacles with His people. As the tent of meeting epitomized the dwelling of God with man under the old covenant, Jesus now becomes that place of meeting. Jesus subtly employs this language in reference to Himself in His ministry. He said to the Jews, What sign do you show us for doing these things? They said to Him, Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It was taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? Referring, of course, to Herod's temple, a a place of tremendous splendor and architectural wonder. How are you going to destroy this temple? Where does their head go? Their head goes the only place anybody's head would go at this point. When he says destroy this temple, he's talking about the temple. It's right there in front of them. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. We see here even just the subtle emphasis that he is the new meeting place with God. Think of this in terms of Israelites who would go to the temple. And it's here that they meet with God. When it is said of Christ, as he says of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As we begin to put this together, we begin to even read the Bible differently. Just that simple phrase, no one comes to the Father. How do you come to the Father? You come to the Father, as we've been learning in Leviticus, on His terms. Carefully. With appropriate sacrifice. With appropriate priesthood. Entering into His presence, we come to God. Jesus now saying of Himself, what was the function of the temple is now Me. You come through Me and through Me alone. I am the way to the Father. So the incarnation of Christ ushers in this new dwelling place of God with man. But we do know that the body of Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended, is no longer here. Where now is the meeting place with God? Where does He dwell among His people now that Christ is ascended into heaven? After Jesus' ascension, the Holy Spirit inhabited the new temple, Christ's body, the church. The ascended Christ sent the promised Holy Spirit to mediate Christ's presence to His people. Jesus prepared His followers for this coming ministry of the Spirit when He said, for instance, in John 16, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. I always picture the disciples there taking a step forward and really tuning their ears. How is that possible? That it's to our advantage that Christ leaves. If I do not go away, he says, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. With the coming of the Helper, whom he identifies in 
chapter 14, as the Holy Spirit, with the coming of the Helper, you will be advantaged by my departure. At Pentecost, in Acts 2, as we know, the risen Savior pours out the Holy Spirit upon His disciples in Jerusalem. And to this day, the Holy Spirit indwells born-again members of Christ's body who together form a new living temple that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit poured out upon His people, we now become the new temple. Notice this emphasis in Ephesians 2. And I would say again, you can't read Ephesians 2 without Leviticus. At least it's going to be very helpful. You, he says, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He speaks to many of his authors, of his readers as Gentiles. You are part of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Notice that last phrase. You're being built up, you're added as stone upon stone to this living building. He's speaking, of course, figuratively. You are a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God dwells in the church through the presence of the Spirit. Again, I think we'll spend forever to try to figure out all the implications, what that means precisely. But writing to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul questions them this way in the way they were living, in the way they were treating one another, as the church of Christ, as the dwelling place of God, He says to them, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? God's Spirit dwells in you as God's temple today. In 2 Corinthians He writes, for we are the temple of the living God. The church, through the presence and indwelling of the Spirit of God, is now the place where we meet with God. We need to qualify that statement. It needs to be nuanced appropriately. But this is what the Bible clearly teaches. We are the temple of the living God, individually and corporately, as a church, as we are faithful and are genuinely followers of Christ. What is the Spirit's primary task today? Now here, as Westerners, it's really helpful for us to just be reminded and to think. The Holy Spirit is not your personal pocket calculator. He's not your personal calendar manager that you sort of pull out and seek a prophecy and seek an urging and seek some sort of message on your own personal endeavors who is the holy spirit what does the holy spirit do the holy spirit's primary task in the new covenant era as j.i packer asserts is to bear witness to the personal presence of the risen reigning savior in and with his people Let me say that again. 
It is to bear witness to the personal presence of the risen reigning Savior in His people and with His people. This is worth the price of admission, let me tell you. Just this statement from Packer. He says, The distinctive, constant, basic ministry of the Holy Spirit under the new covenant is so to mediate Christ's presence to believers. He's talking about something else with the word so there. But he mediates Christ's presence to believers. The New Testament writers saw the Spirit's post-Pentecostal task as essentially that of mediating the presence, the Word, and the activity of the enthroned Christ. This is mystery. This is wonder. This is high privilege. That through the indwelling Spirit in His people... Jesus, the risen Savior, is mediating His presence, His Word, and His activity in this world. What is Christ doing in this world? He is drawing people into this living temple. He is pointing them to salvation in His name He is transforming and holding them. And the Spirit's presence says to us as the temple of God, Christ is risen. He is risen, He is reigning, He is returning. And He is calling a people out for His name. So if you think of this today, where does God dwell We can answer that numerous ways, of course, but as we just steer within this outline, where does God dwell? He dwells with His people. He's right here among us in the indwelling Spirit. This means that when we gather for worship, we gather as a temple of sorts, the new temple, members of the body of Christ. It means that our mission is to expand the presence of Christ in this world as we advance the gospel and new members are united to Christ's body, the church. We are heading out into this world to represent Christ, indeed even through the Spirit to mediate Christ in His saving power as we see the church grow and expand. We're not out there to make money. We're not out there to make people wealthy. We're not out there simply to fix problems, though we will do a good bit of that as Christ's representatives. We are there to bring His saving grace to people lost in sin. As we bring that presence, we fulfill His commission. It all fits so ideally together. Matthew 28, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Again, do you see how we read the Scriptures differently when we see this? I am with you. All authority given to me to represent Christ through the indwelling Spirit and to see more people come to saving faith in Him and added to this temple. The authority is mine. I send you and I am with you to the very end 
of this whole program. This is why Jesus can say in John 14, 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. How do you take that? More phenomenal miracles? Jesus walked on water. Look what we're going to do better than that. No. More important works? How could it be? He dies to pay the penalty of sin and rises from the dead. Of course not. But I think it's in the extension of the works of Christ through the church that will expand to reach the entire earth. Jesus was localized. We are worldwide. And we can do greater works than Christ in some sense as we take this message to multiple nations and multiple peoples and multiple languages. The alt- and ultimately, after the gospel spans the globe, God will renew the heavens and the earth, and sin will be history, and Satan will be gone, and death will be forever conquered. And so we add in parallel to where we started in the end. In the end, God will dwell with man in the eternal city. Following the millennial kingdom, the judgment of Satan and the great white throne judgment, John reveals that there will be new heavens and a new earth and a holy city that descends from heaven to earth, this new earth. John then sounds this triumphant theme for a final time. And what are you going to sound? You're in this symphony of redemption from cover to cover. Where are you going to end it? What song is going to be sung? I mean, there are many. But is this not fitting to end it this way? Revelation 21.3 I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. Tying it all up so perfectly together. This word dwelling with them, the same word used in John 1.14 that the Son, the Word, dwelt with us. And here now again, God with His people. The end of redemptive history, God's people will return to the garden of delight and communion in the presence of God without sin. This, Eden Baptist Church and all who visit with us today, this is the end game right there. You're looking at the words of the end game. This is the reason Emmanuel came in the first place. This is the reason Emmanuel died, paying the penalty of sin in the place of sinners. And the end purpose is that God would once again dwell on earth, a renewed earth among His people. Eden stretched to the ends of the earth, the Lord reigning in the new Jerusalem, the communion with God, and communion with God, the delight of every soul. This is its end. And I wonder, in light of this message, in light of this theme that just continues to play out throughout the Scriptures, I ask you personally, as I ask myself this, thinking through these ideas this week, how synchronized is your daily life with the grand redemptive theme 
of the ages. How synchronized is your life with this theme? God dwelling with us. The only reasonable response is to synchronize, to calibrate our small lives with this grand purpose of God in history and thus to drink deeply at the river of His delights now. One of the reasons we chose the name Eden Baptist Church, the Garden of Delight was lost. We're not getting better and better. It was lost. The Garden of Delight is available to us now in our relationship with Christ as we drink from the living waters of Christ. And Eden is to come. Paradise will be regained as we enter the presence of Christ. The only reasonable response is to synchronize our lives with this grand purpose. And this is why it's so important for us to gather and to remind ourselves again of the inroads of sin and temptation that take us from this big picture. The idols of this world that are put out before our eyes, that are made available for our possession, those idols that take us away from the love of God, they don't look so pretty right now. Grab this moment. Hate those idols. Hate sin and turn from it. It's a reminder to us of our sin, of our bent away from the wonders that God would have for us in delighting in Him. It's a reminder of our self-infatuation and how it hurts us and damages us and takes us away from this river of delights. Now, this is where we're heading. What fool would stand up and say, I have a better eternity planned. I've got a better eternity planned. Really? What would it be? story is told of one thinking along these lines was given the chance to go into eternity and to create any world that he wanted to create. And so he began to draw it all out. And it was filled with all of the sensual pleasures that you could imagine, sensual sinful and sensual non-sinful, but all of the pleasures that this world would give, all calibrated, and I won't give all the details, but all calibrated to what he liked and what he wanted. And after, I don't know, 500 years or something, he came to the place and said, if this is heaven... I am so bored and so sick and so empty of this life of non-ending pleasure. I want to go to the other place. And the angel said to him, where do you think you are? You're in the other place. How could we imagine as creatures standing before God and saying, I imagine a better future filled with my own designs we need to come to terms in this moment again be reminded perhaps informed for some that dwelling in the presence of God was the very reason we were created and it is the ultimate delight and joy the problem isn't with God the problem is not with his delights. The problem is with us in our twistedness to think that we can do better than the Creator. We can create a world down here 
That always gets us in trouble because we've got all these other people trying to do the same thing that cross paths with us. But we can try to do that down here. But in our mind, in our dreams, we can say, I'm going to some better thing. How foolish. God offers delight as our soul's ultimate delight, walking in His presence, communing with Him. And the beauty of this as we think about it ourselves and how we've synchronized our lives to it is that there's no orphan soul here. He's with us. He dwells with us. Through His Spirit, He is in the presence of this church and in our lives. There's no orphan soul when we know Christ as Savior. And there's ultimately no loneliness. And that's not to say that we don't experience loneliness and feel it very much. But think of what this does to undermine that whole reality of loneliness in our lives. And some of us perhaps suffering that here today in very excruciating ways. Put that loneliness next to this promise of God in Hebrews 13. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will not leave you. I will dwell with you. I will be with you. You will be my people. I will be your God. This is my agenda. This is my love for you. I will not leave you. Corporately, as a church, how synchronized is our life together with the reality that we are the new temple of the living God. God's presence resides in us who believe and in the body of Christ, His church, through the indwelling Holy Spirit. It is our privilege to commune with Him in spirit and in truth as we gather together and love one another day after day and as we worship here in His presence. How conscious are we of our identity as living, growing, spirit-indwelt temple? Growth by means of feeding on the Word of God. Feeding on that Word, coming to understand it in its depths, coming to know what God the Creator and the Redeemer is doing as He's revealed it in the Scriptures, coming to discern this more and more, day by day, growing as we feed on that Word. And growing, secondly, by means of suffering that builds our faith. This church is and has and will continue to suffer. There are those that enter into this place today with deep suffering. And we, together as a church, bearing that weight together, have and will suffer. But as we suffer, we know that our faith is built up in this God who is our delight. And we have the privilege to display before a watching world that when they would be utterly miserable and have no hope, we find joy in God in the midst of this very suffering. And it's not just a show to the world. It's what we find ourselves. Have you not been at times stunned by the wonder of walking with Christ at a time when you say there should be nothing but despair. But He meets us with waves of His presence and His grace. And we rejoice. While the world weeps. And while we weep, we rejoice. We grow by means of the Word. We grow by means of suffering. We grow as a living temple by means 
of proclaiming the gospel of Christ, expanding God's dwelling place as we see new people come to Christ as Savior, to follow Him in baptism, as we see new churches here and throughout the world birthed as living examples of the new temple in which the Spirit resides. Our deep concern, the wrenching thought indeed of the heart of this living temple, Eden Baptist Church, is that you may be here today separated from Christ. You may be here not really having any sense of the delight of communion with Him. That's a source of great concern for us, even if we don't know you today. It's a source of great concern because we know the wonder that's there. And I would encourage you to think about this. Do, does God dwell with me? Am I in a reconciled relationship with Him? Have I come to understand Christ's redemptive work to bring me into the presence of God as a forgiven sinner? If you say, that's a mystery to me, I don't understand that, I have no peace, I have no hope, God is your answer. Through the incarnate Christ, through the God-man who was given to be God among us, there is an answer to your sin, to your loneliness, to your hopelessness. But it's not just an answer you might want to try. He's the, the Lord of your life. He is. Come to Him. Seek Him. And seek the salvation that's in His name today. We can help with that. We can't give it to you. We certainly can't sell it to you. Nor would we try. But we can point you to what God has revealed in His Word. Come to that today. Take that move. Take that step today. And we calibrate then our souls to this end game. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God.